HVAC 360 is pleased to bring you this public service announcement from the Construction Cone Therapy Institute. Hello, I'm Dr. Dre von Krinkelstein. My staff and I here at the Construction Cone Therapy Institute provide a safe and quiet environment for those poor, abused, neglected, and depressed construction cones from around the globe. On their behalf, I would like to remind you that these cones are not for sitting, throwing, or kicking. Please stay alert while driving on the road in a construction zone or at the construction site. For heaven's sakes, grab a cup of coffee. Remember, hands are ten and two. Trauma caused by these vehicular incidents runs deeper than just the physical damage. And for you teenagers out there, stealing, or, as we like to say, rather cone-napping, is simply unforgivable, leading to permanent psychological impairment for those poor cones. Stop using them as megaphones or wearing them as party hats. Ha ha ha! Just stop it! This message has been brought to you by the Construction Cone Therapy Institute, asking you to please respect the cone. Hey, what's up? Welcome back. This is episode number 116. Matt Nelson here, your host for HVAC 360, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. How do we do that? We do that by sharing and caring, sharing lessons learned and talking to caring industry experts. But we don't really stop there. I want to encourage you to double down on your weekly dose of HVAC knowledge by hopping on over to HVAC360.com and joining my growing community of people just like you. Uh, Last call here for enrollment for the HVAC 360 membership site. After tomorrow, this will air at the end of January. After tomorrow, the the membership site will close for a period of time to be reopened in a future date, but the discount will be gone. So jump on it now. All right, so what's up for this week? This week, I am super excited. We're going to be talking with Adam Muggleton. He is known as the Building Whisperer. He is also the co-host for the Edifice Complex podcast. Uh, It was a great interview, and he has a ton of knowledge. So I'll stop yammering now, and we can just cut to the tape. All right, today we're going to be talking with Adam Muggleton, who is the self-proclaimed Building Whisperer. How are you doing today, Adam? Very good, thank you. Fantastic. Um, so, I know that a lot of people might know you from uh, your work or um, the uh, podcast that you have, the Edifice Complex. And uh, you know, I've I've been a big fan of that, so I just wanted to kind of give you some kudos there. Uh, anybody who hasn't listened to that, uh, in addition to HVAC three hundred and sixty, uh, go ahead and uh, go ahead and subscribe to that and listen to that. And it's, uh, it's, it's really some great stuff. I think you get some iconic people on there uh, to provide a lot of value. And uh, so uh, kudos for that. Thank you very much. So I know that uh, this is a loaded question, but I, I want to say what, what really gets you worked up the most about the construction industry? It's, that's a big question to open with, man. <laughs> well, okay, so I could blow an hour on this, but I shall get this down to stop people going to sleep. 
The thing that troubles me about the construction industry, I started work on the 1st of December 1980. Yes, I am old and bald. But the defects list I saw in most buildings in 1980 would apply to every building I work on today. I could sit in my office remotely and write the snag list for any building you want and be 80% correct. And that is tragic. Because when you think about other industries that have developed, uh, medical, automotive is a great example, right? Uh, quality's gone up, cost has gone down relative to inflation, cars are just exponentially more awesome than they were back in the day. If you compare that to construction, construction costs have gone up with inflation. Um, I would argue, Yes, the buildings are more sexy, there's more gadgets in them, and they look better, for sure. But I would argue the embedded technology and the integration in buildings is nowhere near where it should be. Uh, so it frustrates me that buildings, building design and construction has not advanced as much as it should have done. And the quality and the disparity in outcome is troubling to me. And the other thing is it doesn't attract people into the business, right? So a lot of people don't leave school or university. Oh, God, I want to be an engineer. I want to be a mechanical engineer. Some do. They're nerds like me and you, right? <laughs> But, you know, my daughter just graduated from uh, with a mechanical engineering degree and seeing her go through and seeing the world through her eyes and her cohort, I mean, they came out of their school. They would rather cut their own arm off than go and work in the construction industry. They want to work for Elon Musk. Why is that? Well, he's sexy. He's doing great things, right? Where's the Elon Musk in our business? Who is that guy or girl, right? Why? The other thing is there's – so. Elon Musk is a role model. People want to model themselves on him, right? He's out there. He's doing great stuff. You know, there's a lot of crazy going on there, to be fair. Right? Let's get that out of there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, who is the uh, Elon Musk or the Conor McGregor of mechanical engineers or electrical engineers or building services engineers, right? Who do the graduates model themselves on? So one of the reasons we launched the Edifice Complex was to try and deliver that, try and find people who are out there doing great work, who are innovating, who are making a difference, or even just doing great stuff as they should do, because that's not necessarily a usual thing. And put that out there as an example for people. So in my mind, whenever we're doing a podcast and we're interviewing a past president of ASHRAE who's on this month, you know, hopefully someone's listening to that who's just about to graduate or graduate, and they take some inspiration from that, and they use that person as a role model for what their career could be or what they could achieve, right? So, again, highfalutin stuff, I guess. But for me, it's just a frustration with the outcomes and the quality. That's it. It could be better. It should be better and it must be better is how I would summarize that. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, you look about uh, uh, Elon Musk and, you know, some of the exciting things and, and, and stuff that they do. Um, and you're right. You, we just need uh, better examples, better, uh, uh, you know, better examples of, of what that looks like in our industry. Yeah, because we just don't get that. Time Magazine isn't covering, uh, you know, the people that you're covering, even though they're they're doing, you know, some some pretty massive things. Um, you know, and it, and it's and especially in our our industry, you know, it's it's really it's really critical. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we interviewed a guy recently on the podcast who's going to come out sometime in 2019. A guy called Steve Burrows. So he's a British guy um, who's now an American. Um, he's had a TV show. He designed the um, 
the Olympic Stadium for Beijing. Um, and he start, He didn't even graduate high school. Yet in the UK, there's a route to, to make a mistake like I did, and they'll still get back in. And now he's an acclaimed engineer, right? And I'd never heard of him. I've been in the business for 37 years, <laughs> and I found him on LinkedIn, and I love what he was doing, and he was gracious enough to come on, and he gave me one of the most inspirational interviews of my life. I came out of that interview just wanting to start again. He is just awesome. Right, so you know that the people there are inspirational people there. They're out there. We got to find them and put them out there. And you know, I defy anyone not to listen to Steve Burrow's interview and not be inspired to be an engineer. I wanted to go out and just re-enroll after I finished that. <laughs> no, that, that's fantastic. Yeah, because I mean, we're not not necessarily known for for being the inspirational types, you know. So it's it's really you know nice to nice to see that. Mm, absolutely, and engineers tend to be. I always think of it like a calculator, right? A calculator has an outside aesthetic and it works. And the only time you think of the printed circuit board is when it doesn't work, right? And the problem with engineering in a way in buildings is the building services, mechanical, electrical, plumbing services, they are the embedded technology. And they're sort of behind the scenes and you only really notice them when they don't work. So they get a disproportionate amount of negative press in a way, you know? Right. Uh, We need to somehow make building services sexy. There's a hashtag there somewhere. (laughs) I know. I know. It's 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 the best when the when the engineer does the best job. You don't notice him. You don't notice yeah. anything about anything about the HVAC. You're just comfortable. You go in the space, and it's just nice to be in. And you really couldn't put your finger yeah. on it, but it's just you you like the space. And a lot of times, then you associate that with this aesthetics. Um, you know what the architect has done. But really, when you're when you're comfortable. When the lighting's right, when you got all those factors, you got mm-hmm. the indoor air quality, um, the, you know the right ventilation. It just it feels like a great space. But I think that that's where the architects would get the uh, all, all, you know all the accolades. Agreed. And to give a shout out to Robert Bean, my co-host on the podcast, he has always come from this first principle of designing for comfort and not indoor air quality. You know that that whole putting the <clears throat> the experience of being in the space at the center of your design process is an often overlooked factor, I think. So shout out to Robert being there. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, Robert, great job. Um, now, I guess uh, one of the things that, that I want to talk about is your, uh, your passion for asset management. How would, you, how would you describe asset management and why is it important to you? So let me answer that in reverse order. It's important to me because one of the problems with our industry is everyone involved in the design and construction of building has absolutely nothing to do with operating it. So you're completely incentivized to get in and get out quick with no pain, right? A maximum profit. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a free market. But there's this disconnect between delivery and then running it, right? So the running of the building is a 25, 30-year process. Why is it that a building that's handed over, let's say it's a lead gold building, it's handed over and it's at a certain level of operation and efficiency. Why is it that that building has to decrease in efficiency and energy efficiency? Why does it decay over time? Why can't it flatline or even get better over time? So that's a function of asset management, right? So asset management is a function of of a few things. It's the function of what building, how the building is given over to what quality and how it works. It's a function of how it's used and it's a function of how it's maintained and managed. So there's a three, three legs on that stool, if you like, and they're all interlinked. So asset management is a really important thing. 
The other thing that matters, what I think is greatly overlooked, is the information required to be to to manage that asset. So we're on the road to this holy grail of BIM and Revit, where one day everyone you're smiling and I'm smiling back at you. <laughs> so I I I totally buy into the concept here. There is a day in the future where a building will be designed in Revit. Everyone will be able to use it without a PhD, and um, a Revit model will be handed over, and in that will be every information asset you could want. Right? I click on the beam, I can see the construction date, the quality of it, you know, everything there is to know about it. That's information asset management, right? And you need a good information assets to run an asset. And then you need to benchmark that information and then benchmark the performance of that asset and then continually monitor it and hopefully improve its performance, right? So asset management is is the three legs we spoke about. And the information you feed into that, the quality of the information you feed into that is vital, right? Now, what I see in a lot of buildings I work on is buildings are handed over, some fantastic buildings. The r manuals are late, the record drawings, the as-built drawings are not accurate. And most, I would say nine out of 10 facilities managers, they take a building and they just put everything they get in the basement and they go and do their own surveys, they do their own um, asset register and they just start from scratch. That is such an overlap and waste of money. And that's the gap that needs plugging, right? So asset management matters because if a building has a life cycle of 25, 30, 40 years, that is the predominant cost function of that building, right? So the cost, I saw a graph the other day, the cost to build it was something like five, 15% and the cost to demolish it was 3% and everything else was the running cost, right? So you know, that tells you where the attention should be, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's funny because I when I think of uh, you know the the BIM and using BIM and using this uh, information to the the, the greatest capacity, um, I'm reminded of uh, back in the day when I was uh, in, you know a design engineer drawing, and we had all these you know this this new BIM and you know what you know that we didn't need any estimators and this was the design build career <laughs> so we didn't need the estimators anymore. You could just take what we drew. And you know that would yeah. be the that would be the the job, and you know mm-hmm. the 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 uh, person running the you know, the project manager is like, no, I can't I can't trust what you've done. I have to redo it, and and really it's that mm-hmm. trust of you know garbage in, garbage out. They need to be able to say, hey, you know what, I trust what you're doing, and I'm going to take it, and I'm going to you know improve on it. I'm going to massage it, but for the most part, it's it's right. So, mm-hmm. but that that trust isn't isn't there. You know, even from the BIM model, yeah. I've I've seen um, you know contractors that just take the architectural and structural and throw away the MEP uh, BIM because they have to redraw everything to their standards, and it's like I'll, that's that's a waste and worse work product. I'll, I'll raise you one better than that. I worked on a P three project, which shall be nameless, and uh, there was a requirement in the RFP for a BIM model. So what they did, they did everything the usual way, and then right in the last six months, they reverse engineered everything into a BIM model and handed it over. How crazy is that? So we're, the BIM is a great idea, no question about it. Mm-hmm. But we're in this no man land on the road to where it should be, where you're requiring to deliver it. The skills are not there. The training is not there. The cost is too high. So you get what you just described, double double work, right? So the idea is you can click on it and get an elemental breakdown, but there's a trust issue. There's liability issues. 
Um, interestingly, the UK solved this with their school building program. So they had a school building program that required BIM models, right? They're trying to move everyone to BIM. And there was an issue where design firms, like electrical design firms, structural design firm, they were passing the model around. And the question was, who owns, if there's a structural guy who makes a mistake, does the whole team own the liability for that mistake or does the structural guy? So what the UK government did, they gave an indemnity to the design team on that. That let them gave them the confidence to pass the model around. Obviously, they still got to do work and there has to be some consequences. But that was one way to solve it, which I thought was quite an interesting way. I think the ultimate way you solve this indemnity issue is you get true vertical integration of construction. Now, I'm not talking about the usual design and build where a big a big construction firm hires a design firm the same way they buy a brick and then bullies <laughs> a what's it out of them, right? No, I'm talking about true vertical integration where the designers, the architects, engineers are full-time paid salaried employees of the construction firm. Then the liability rests where it should be, right? Now, that's hard to see that happening anytime soon, I think. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. No, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the independence of the AE firms are just, you know, yeah. that would be too great. I, you know, every, everything's a partnership when you're talking about the, uh, you know, the vertical integration and it's, it's, it's a big, um, you know, power grab when you get people in the same mm. room, um, you know, talking about how they're going to go about this integrated, um, you know, building projects. Have you had some of these kickoff meetings on these P3 jobs? It's like an episode of The Office, right? Everyone's like, oh, it's vertical integration, one dream, one team. And by the end of it, everyone's like dying to get away from each other, you know, because really it's horizontally integrated. It's not vertically integrated. And I, I don't know how you solve these problems, but there needs to be some different thinking. I think the market is wide open for a real innovation, innovative firm to redefine how they do that. Uh, I think that's starting to happen in the residential market in the US. I've seen some firms starting up where, and even Amazon and Google are entering this market where they're going to try and move into the prefabricated housing market, but at a high end and prefab it and have all the gadgets in it and all the IoT things. That's another thing that triggers me. And, um, you know, and that way is vertically integrated. So I, I add a Muggleton, I go and buy a house, I have a plot of land, I say, give me this house, and it will. They can manufacture it and accurately model it, and I, they give me some certainty on how it's going to perform and to what standard it will be delivered, and then they just deliver it. And I'm, it's a one-stop shop for me. I don't know if the designer works for the guy or not, right? He should do, but I don't care. I just get my thing. It works. Done. Now, it's hard to do that at skyscraper scale, but it's not hard to do that at residential scale, I'd say. Under 4,000, 5,000 square foot, it's not hard to do that at all. Right. And I think that's starting to happen now. Coming soon to Amazon Prime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeff, he's getting di- he's getting divorced, right? He needs a new business. <laughs> so I guess you you've mentioned this a couple of times, and I just wanted to make sure that listeners um, get a chance to you know ask the question themselves. P three. Yeah. What what do you what do you talk about? What what is P three? Right. Yeah. So let me explain that. So um, this started in Australia. P three. Is, it has many acronyms, P3, Public Finance Initiative, or Public-Private Partnership. They're all acronyms. What that all means is the government puts out an RFP or, or the local authority puts out an RFP, and a consortium of design builders bid for it. And it's typically big hosp- hospital projects, infrastructure projects, airports. And <clears throat> what happens is they get shortlisted to three 
they borrow $500 billion from a bank and then they design it, build it and run it for 25 years and lease it back to the government or whatever authorities put the RFP out. So if you're all, this started in Australia, was big in the UK, has been big in Canada, and it's just getting traction in America. So in America, examples are JFK, LaGuardia. No, LaGuardia, sorry. JFK was the first P3, but it wasn't called P3. JFK Terminal 4, that's the building I worked on. But LaGuardia Airport is an example of a P3. So the airport put out an RFP to a consortium. Consortium built it and run it and lease it back to the airport. So what that means is if you're, say, if you're the UK government, you get to stand up as a politician and say, we're going to build all these hospitals and schools. Woo, whoop, whoop, big whoop, right? And because we're horrible at running capital projects, as you all know, because we're the government, um, we're going to get the private sector to do it and they're going to take all the risk. So that's the premise. And it's true and not true at the same time. Because the reason it's not true at the same time is when you build a large hospital, right, it's the only hospital in the area, and you go bust, the government's coming in and taking that over, right? <laughs> so all it is is deferred liability off the government balance sheet. But it's a great way of delivering a lot of infrastructure. Australia's done it. Canada's done it. UK's done it. And it has delivered a lot of hospitals. Where I live in Toronto, there's multiple projects and hospitals all being done for the baby boomers and their new knees and hips. It's been slow to be adopted in America. And I think the reason for that is it's a bit of not invented here syndrome, you know, you're number one, mega, mega. So, um, but however, I think because municipalities are essentially broke everywhere and governments are broke everywhere, it is starting to come in to the US. So if you get a presidential candidate promising load of infrastructure soon, you can bet your life that's going to be a P3. So come in, come into a municipality and a state near you soon. <laughs> Fascinating. Now, I know that uh, if if you if you um, on your LinkedIn profile, I, I noticed that uh, you're the architect of the Converge software. Yeah. So, and this has to do with asset management, like we were talking before. What was what was the purpose was of that? Why was it developed? Um, right. So the story here is when I. When I did my Brexit and moved to Canada 12 years ago now, um, and the UK market is quite different to North America, which shocked me, actually, <laughs> when I moved here. <laughs> so in a way that the UK market is very competitive, there's no unions, um, it's a bit of a kill or be killed place. Consequently, a consequence of that is a lot of innovation, a lot of competition. And the other thing to say in the UK is for you to get an occupancy permit, you have to cough up the as-built and the M&M manuals. So I moved to Canada. It's like setting my uh, it's like setting my clock back 25, 30 years. <laughs> Architects still run jobs, which is a crazy thing. And contractors pretty much do what they want, right? So in Canada, for example, contractors just run this show. They run this place. And they do not cough up O&M manuals on time or as built on time and any other manuals you get typically are just photocopied cut sheets that the that the slowest dumbest intern who couldn't run fast enough when that job was given out got <laughs> so i thought to myself hey you know what in the uk there's all these software solutions we're gonna i had a commissioning firm that's called cdml so i thought i know i'm gonna hire a coder and we're gonna create this software and it's gonna be awesome because it's gonna be uh tablet-based, web-based. I'll be one generation ahead of the UK, legacy systems, and everyone's going to love it. So we did that. Hired a coder. 
and we produced this browser-based thing that could work online or offline. So we called it an information asset management tool. So we offered two things. We'll either take all your as-builts and information on the job and put it in there and give it to you, or we will also do the technical writing and write you a proper O&M manual and put that in there. And the idea is you just, online or offline, you open up your device, any browser, and you do keyword search, I don't know, Boiler 2, and everything to do with Boiler 2 comes up, and you click, and off you go to it, right? Mm -hmm. And it worked perfectly. Could not give that thing away (laughs) in Canada. (laughs) So we we did we did some sales. I mean, yeah, we're doing. It wasn't. I would say it was a failure, but it didn't take off. I thought it would be the hottest thing since sliced bread. And the reason it didn't take off, in my opinion, was a couple of reasons. One is contractors. When I first launched it, I thought we'd be selling to contractors because in the UK it's the contractors that buy it because they have to cough these manuals up to complete the job. But that requirement's not in North America. So the contractors went, yes, that's awesome, Adam. You show me a spec that tells me I've got to do it that way and I'll do it. So, okay. So I readjusted my sales approach. So we went to the owners and helped them specify it. But that was a really long process because you had to get in their specs, get out to a job, be bid, right? So it's, it's been a slow takeoff. Uh, my, my basic point, though, is if you know we can put a man on the moon and I carry an iPhone, which has got more computing power than anything to put the man on the moon, yet we're still handing out photocopied paper when we hand a job over, right? This is why FM teams just look at the as-builts and R&M manuals and laugh and put them in the basement. So I think in North America the concept will take off, but it's going to be a running gun battle between proprietary software and the ultimate solution for BIM. Now, interestingly, in the UK, there's a lot of BIM solutions for R&M manuals now. Hmm. So... It's, you know, it's, is it necessary and useful? I think so. I would say that, wouldn't I? Because I'm selling it. <laughs> um, but the way contracts and contracting is done in North America, there's little incentive for people to buy it unless the owner absolutely demands digital asset management, information assets, right? Right. You know, and, and, and I see, I see this, at least from, from, from my standpoint, I can imagine most of the most of the time they have an asset management tool that mm. you know they they have in house already. So if you're doing say something for a institution, whether it be a university, college, or a uh, you know healthcare provider, they already have that asset management tool in house. And yeah. to get the two to you know marry is has got to be difficult. And I know that a lot of the uh, asset management tools that they have. Are trying to kind of you know push out towards the you know the, the construction process. So yeah, yeah, I agree. That was one of the things we looked at. So we looked at maybe being an add-on to uh, like an FM software tool. That that's possible, but it's it's all about bridging this gap between the handover of building the FM team. There's sucking the information and good information out of the construction team is the is the $64,000 question, right? How do you do that? And I thought software was the answer, and I still do, but there's a contractual legal component to that Mm -hmm. to make that happen that's just not there in any way at the moment in North America for sure. Um, If, I don't know, building code was changed and said, well, you have to to get an occupancy certificate, you need, you know, complete as-builts and complete O&Ms, that would be a game changer. But at the moment, that's not in the cards. I mean, lobbying to get that in 51 states and 10 provinces, <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah. 
Right. And that's one of the, that's one of the issues in North America. Right? I now understand that in the UK, it's a much smaller environment and the government's a bit more top down and it's not federal. So you can be a bit more Prince Joffrey and issue an edict, right? Whereas in, in North America, in Canada and in in America, it's a federal situation. So it's very hard to be top down with anything, right? Mm-hmm. So things go down to 11, 10 provinces where I live and 51 states where you live and it gets changed and lobbied and, you know, you ask for a horse and you wind up with a three-humped camel ultimately in everything, right? And that's just a fact of life in North America. Change comes a little bit slower, I think, because of that. Good, bad, or indifferent, it doesn't matter. That's just the way it is, right? Yeah. So now I think <laughs> jumping jump topics here. Sure. So the Internet of Things. I mean, talk about things that are just, you know, <laughs> that are coming at us fast and furious. I know that's a that's a hot topic for you. Yeah. What what is it about the Internet of Things that 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 really you know see there's there's an opportunity and a frustration there. I think. Yeah. That, so t- talk about the Internet of Things as it applies to buildings. So the Internet of Things is is a good buzzword, and I like it. And I, again, like BIM, I love the concept, right? But people throw it around who don't really understand what it means. So the problem. The problem is, if you let's use the car analogy, cars have Internet of Things all over it, right? A Tesla, or even just a normal car, you know, a GM car has a computer on board, and it has an Internet of Things that, that it can measure in excruciating detail and accuracy: the temperature, the speed, the flow rate list, the pressure of that, right? That's there. A car is a living, working embodiment of the Internet of Things, right? It can track your movements and upload it to the cloud. All that. So, why does it work on a car? because cars are constructed to a very high standard and quality. The reliability of a car is just pretty much 100%. When I first started buying cars in the 1980s, you know, some mornings you could go out and it was a 50-50 shot where the thing started. That just doesn't happen anymore, right? The thought that my car won't start or work does never enter my mind. Now, let's scale that up to a building. You can have the same amount of Internet of Things in a building and measure everything you want, there's two barriers to that. One is the quality of the building, right? So you can, if you put a thousand sensors on a piece of crap, it's still a piece of crap, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's this disconnect between design concept and actual delivery. I was on, I blogged about this before Christmas because I was on, on a site overseas and this is a high-end lab building. Millions of dollars spent on this thing and I was part of the design team and it, everyone was doing great work. And I just came out, when that went out of 10, I thought this is going to be great. Fast forward to the end of construction, I walked around the job, there's leaky duct work, nothing's lined up, nothing's working properly. So, you know, that great design work has just gone to nothing because, you know, the systems affect everywhere that's going to be an energy cost. Um, the BMS got value engineered down, so a lot of the measuring points went out. So there's two impediments, right? One is the quality of the construction, and that goes all the way down to the plumbing fittings. And the other one is the cost. So a BMS point can cost, depending where you're in the world, anything between $1,000 and $2,000 a point, right? When you're in a construction industry that's focused on first costs, that, that always comes under scrutiny, right? Now, the Internet of Things will work, and I'm convinced it's going to be a big thing in the future because I think the cost of the Internet of Things or the cost of, let's call it what it is, the cost of monitoring and controlling points is going to fall exponentially. 
to the point where it might even be cents on the dollar per point. And it's going to be uh, wireless, possibly, and you're going to be able to put them everywhere to the point where you can measure every duct, every valve. And at that point, you will get real control over a building. And what you will also get is the ability to measure, and a couple of things will come out of that. One is people will go, it's that bad? And then there will be action. And then you will start seeing assets perform on an increasingly better basis over time instead of degrading over time, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing is the technology, right? It's it's hard at the moment. You know, you get a you go on site and there's a guy on a laptop and he doesn't move all day. He sits there like Ray Charles at the piano and he's a bit of a wizard. And if you ask him anything, you know, he's a software jockey, right? Mm. <laughs> he doesn't really understand what's on the end of it. So the great controls engineers are the people with the software skills and the application skills, and they're hard to come by, right? So there's a massive skill shortage. But I think all these things will get solved in the end. So the Internet of Things, again, great promise, but at the moment people throw it out there as a concept like it's magic pixie dust that's going to fix every bad bit of everything, and it's not like that, right? So whatever way you cut it, you have to deliver great construction to a high standard to make the technology that we have today, let alone what's coming tomorrow, work properly. Right? Yeah. I mean, essentially you have the, you know, the the internet of things and you have, you know, high performance buildings and real realistically you have to get the fundamentals down in building construction before you can kind of add yeah. the icing on this cake. Yeah, so talk to me about the Internet of Things when you put in straight ductwork that doesn't leak. Even straight ductwork doesn't leak to the correct specification. I'd be happy with that. I'd be able to move with that. That would be so unusual. I'd probably do a handstand and a backflip if I saw that. <laughs> so you know, we're getting the cart before the horse a little bit, right? The Internet of Things is good, and it's awesome, and it's going somewhere. But can we just back up the truck a bit and get buildings put in properly and installed correctly? And have some accountability to that. That would make the difference, right? Right. So, yeah, again, I sound like a grumpy old man because I am. But you can't – you wouldn't drive a car with all the bells and whistles and gadgets on it if it if you were frightened it was not going to start properly <laughs> or it was only doing 10 miles to the gallon, right? Right. And that's effectively what we got at the moment. we got buildings that look like Ferraris and have every conceivable gadget on it but they operate like a 1980s Ford Fiesta. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's all, you know, when it's all said and done, the construction is not as important as the people who are in the building, and that yeah. includes the maintenance staff. Mm. So, you know, it, it, there, it really is that disconnect between, you know, prioritizing the way a building operates and the people inside it. Yeah. So maybe... There's a lack of democracy, for want of a better word, from users, right? They're the unheard majority. So the, design, the building's design and constructors hand it over. The FM guys run it. They're like the local constabulary. The head of FM's like the mayor. And then you've got the population who are sort of like the unheard with no vote, no say. They come and go, but they spend eight, nine hours a day in these buildings, right? If there's some way democratizing their voice and gamifying a system where they had a way to say, so, you know, I'm just fed up of being cold all the time or I'm fed up of being hot all the time or the noise from here doesn't work for me. And then some loop where they could say that and then that could be reacted on by an FM team who could then 
do something about that. Am I sounding sound like a hippie here, right? Yeah, no. man, we're gonna do that. <laughs> no, I can I can only imagine if that was actually put in place to a building that was already existing, the yeah. the, the you know the FM team would just their heads would explode because yeah, it would be yeah. so bad and they couldn't fix it and they didn't have the budget yeah. and the you know all these complaints and all these opinions and votes would uh, come you know pouring in and they'd be be beside themselves. I'm gonna tie this up in a bow now. So. You could do that, and it would be good for the FM guys because if the Internet of Things was so prevalent that they could prove something, so someone could say, you know, I'm too cold, and they go, but look, it's been 21 at your workstation on a flat line for eight hours, So, or when the humidity is this and the sound is that, and the, right? then a real complaint would actually get actioned and a whiner would just get ignored, but will get ignored with evidence, right? Right. That's the, that's the future and the other future, I think, is um, bringing blockchain into this just to be super trendy. Um, blockchain and Bitcoin for me is a solution looking for a problem. There's no way governments can let that happen as a currency because if governments can't print currency and devalue it, then they're out of business, right? So they're never going to let that happen. But blockchain has a role, I think, as a way of authenticating records. So let's take an example. Say I had energy meters that were revenue-based. So I was taking energy from district system. There's a revenue meter there measuring the cooling and heating company and I pay per kilowatt hour or BTU. There's a blockchain application that can sit on that, that sits there as an unbiased dist distributed ledger that proves what, is, what I've got and what I pay for. So there's a, there's a loop there where the meter measures it, blockchain records it, there's money in escrow based on the blockchain and smart contract takes the money out. And there's no he said, she said argument, right? Now, you can scale that up to so many things. It could be a service level agreement for temperature and humidity in a space. If it goes out of temperature and humidity for a given period of time, there is a consequence in a smart contract that takes money out of your account. That's gamifying it, right? Now, is that going to happen in an office? No. But in a data center where... If certain parameters are not met, there are financial consequences. And you can record that objectively in blockchain. So there's no, but I was there and it didn't happen, but now I, you know. So again, I think there's a fantastic future for blockchain, Internet of Things, being the whole convergence of this technology. Um, but there's a social and legal and contractual aspect to that that needs to catch up, you know, oh, right. and, a, and, a, and an everyday practice around it. But there is so it's such an exciting time to be in our industry at the moment because I think it's been slow to change, but the pressure building up to change is becoming immense. And it's going to be driven by owners who are just fed up with bad outcomes. Right, because their expectations are, you know, yeah. you, you hire somebody and they're an expert in their field mm. and then yeah. you get delivered this product that it's like, okay, well, who's to blame? And you know, you can either, you know, with, with some institutional clients, they actually have, you know, <laughs> a legal department on, on you know, retainer, yeah. or you have, you know, some sort of, you know, muni you know important municipality, which just has to, you know, suffer the consequences of yeah. inadequate design. I, that's, that's, you know, atrocious. It is. And you know, I think the people that will lead this change are going to be people like municipalities, people who have to live with the consequence of what they buy for 25, 30, 40 years, right? The, spe the speculative developer is never going to get on board with this. These are going to be the last person on board. 
But someone like the Corps of Engineers or the government who like, they're, they're some of the biggest landlords in the world, right? So for them, there is actual real benefit to bringing some order to this chaos ultimately, right? Yeah. And I think that is where it will come. Uh, previous podcast guest, who's the chairman of the Green Building Council in um, UAE, I'm name dropping here, Saeed Alibar, shout out to him. He He's interesting because he works at a lot of, um, at the government level in his role as chairman of the Green Building Council. And his observation is there is real change happening at state and municipal level. When you get below the, the rah-rah of the nine o'clock news at night, there's actually some real action going on. And that's a source of real optimism for me. Take California, for example, in the US, right? They've been, whatever you think about it, you know, is it hippies or is it crazy people? Who knows? Who cares? Right? But the point is they're doing something, right? They're actively passing legislation to try and move the needle. And that is happening at a state level and down at the municipal level. And I think that, Saeed's right, that is where the change is going to happen. It's going to happen quietly, right under your nose. And then it will percolate back up to the federal level and the governmental level, main governmental level. I think that's my theory. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think California and places like that, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, whether you think you know, California hippie, dippy, what, what, what have you, yeah. I think that there's some real problems there and they're trying to have some real, they're trying, they're trying solutions. So whether or not it, it's it's yeah. the right way to go about it may be up to debate, but at least you can have the debate once you have tried something and you yeah. can evaluate it. I mean, it's California matters, right? It's the ninth largest economy in the world. And what they're doing basically is becoming an R&D hub for a lot of states and countries, right? You know, some things have worked, some things haven't. But if I was an adjacent state, I could look at that and go, well, that didn't work, but I like what they did there and just take it on. Yeah, right? cherry pick. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of hubris and pride that stops somehow governments doing that. But why not? Why not let someone else have the uh, have the fall over and just take the good bits of the work? There's nothing wrong with that. Right. No, absolutely. You know, I always, <laughs> I always, I always think that you know, it's like, hey, you got you got fifty states, and what you know, why can't you know, there you got multiple multitude of different social problems. Why can't you just say, okay, you know, this state try to solve this one and that state try to solve that one and then see what see what happens so nobody's taking you know all the risk and obviously you know the built environment is is a huge a huge one actually you know what that's a good takeaway from that comment you know america is in a great position to do some good a b testing right yeah. states adjacent to each other you try this you try that and we'll see what happens you know, yep. that is a, a great concept actually i like that so life i i like the old analogy life is a venn diagram right Wherever there's, what did Ben Shapiro say? There's your opinion, my opinion, and the truth, right? And everything <laughs> sits in the middle. Life is a Venn diagram, right? You've got to get off your, your horse a bit and just look at things a bit objectively and pick what works. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So I, I think I'd like to, uh, you have, you have a, uh, a question, you know, your own question, and I'd like to see you answer your own question here. Go on then. All right, so... Why are zero defect, high-performing buildings not normally delivered? I'll tell you that in one answer, one sentence. Owners do not ask for it. Full stop. Period. The reason things are the way they are. I'm a big. I'm a big fan of the Romans. Everything that's going on today has happened a hundred times before, right? So, what the Romans say: follow the money, right? The people that can really change things are the people with the money. The people with the money are the owners and developers, right? 
if I was an owner, you can get a zero defect building. All you have to do is ask for it. But you have to ask for it in a way that provides consequences when it doesn't get delivered, right? I, I used to, in a past, I'm a chart surveyor. I used to be a property development manager in the UK, and we used to work, do a lot of development management for a firm called British Land, who are one of the largest um, high-end developers. So I used to do AAA offices and multi-use res- uh, developments in London. So they used to, they were really interesting for me because they used to get great high-quality outcomes. And the way they did that was they pre-qualified everyone into a, like, there was a special forces of architects, engineers, and construction people who worked for them. It was typically five of each category, right? And they would go to them. They wouldn't RFP it. They'd negotiate with them, negotiate rate based on a construction cost plan. So you, if you worked for them, you knew you could get paid. They were liquid. You made great developments. It was always good to work for them, right? But if you didn't perform, you were off the list. And being off the list with them has been like losing 10% of the market share. <laughs> so consequently, there were, there were great rewards for being good and there were real consequences for not being good. And one of the consequences was you were off that list for five years. Right? So I can't name names, but there was a there's probably only four or five firms that can build skyscrapers in the UK, right? real ones. One of them screwed up on a job we were on. They were technical list for five years, and every year the managing director would like make a full front of assault and say, we're different now, we're going to do it this. <laughs> and they said, no, you're off for five years. Now, the, the signal that sent to everyone was, if you screw up, there is pain for you. And it takes five years, in our opinion, for the people involved in that mess to, to filter away and new people be in place. So I, I always took that way as a great example because they – were consistent in getting great outcomes in their buildings. Now, they were the developer that would develop and build and lease and not sell. They sell some, but typically they they build to own and lease. So they were very involved and invested in how it came out and how it operated. So I, I took a lot of inspiration away from that. So I've seen it happen. It is possible to get great outcomes, but you've got to be a bit of a badass, right? Yeah. There's got to be some consequences. You can't – what did one client said to me in Canada? Don't worry, Adam. The contractor's taking care of me. It'd be all right. <laughs> At which point my chin hit the floor and I walked out. <laughs> <laughs> and that doesn't mean there's not great contractors out there. There are. But, again, they're lost in the noise of all the bad ones. There are good contractors out there. But they're not rewarded. That. Good contractors are not paid enough and bad contractors are paid too much, right? Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to differentiate when you're doing a tender. That, that's an issue. So anyway, bottom line is everything I think is the owner's problem. If they get bad cons- bad results, that's on them. All right, fantastic. You know, so I think that the last thing that I'm going to do is if there is anything that we haven't really talked about for um, you know, construction, high performance, Internet of Things. Anything? Any last? Any last uh, comments you'd like to leave us with? I, I'd I'd like to uh, just say one thing. If you're a young engineer, this is a great time to be alive and to be coming into your career. Let's say you've just graduated and you're you're a junior engineer. You've got 30, 40 years in front of you, and you're going to see a lot of change, a lot of innovation. You're going to see a lot of things come to fruition that are talked about now, 
that aren't really real that will become real during your time. So in my opinion, it's a great time to be an engineer. An engineer is a great career. You know, if you're if you're on the edge and thinking, should I do engineering or should I do something else? Do engineering. My mentor said to me once, said, Adam, you'll never be a millionaire, which in today's language is a billionaire, but you'll always have an interesting job and you'll go to interesting places. And I can tell you, I've had a wonderful job and I've worked in 21 countries. So he was bang on with that. And that is possible for everyone. And you get the chance to change something right, and make a difference. So that's my pitch to be an engineer. Do it if you're if you're not sure. Go for it. Excellent. Well, uh, Adam, I appreciate your time and uh, appreciate you talking to us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us on. All right. Thanks again to Adam Muggleton for taking his time to chat with us. Check out the show notes and links to other things mentioned in the interview. You can find those show notes at HVAC360.com slash 116. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Hope this was helpful. If you know somebody who needs this type of information, and I know you all do, pass it along. It helps everybody. If you're not a subscriber, consider joining the growing community of people just like you over at HVAC360.com for some more weekly goodness. And last, it would do a ton of good if you would consider leaving me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only does it help spread the word and get us recognition. All right. Well, that's a wrap for this week on HVAC360. I'm your host, Matt Nelson, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. And as always, know what you build and share what you know. 